Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. John Matthews, who is the Senior VP of Clinical Development at Recode Therapeutics. Prior to joining Recode, John spent more than three years at 23andMe as a Senior Clinical Fellow and Senior Clinical Development Leader. And prior to that, he spent, I think, about 10 years at Roche Genentech, five years at GSK, and two years at Novartis. So all that is to say John has extensive experience with drug development, both in large and small organizations, biotechs, and, and 23andMe obviously being an interesting example of a consumer and, and data-focused company that started to build a drug development organization internally. So we're going to talk today about learnings from John's career uh, and go deep into some of his work at Recode, developing novel genetic medicines, where they're starting with two rare lung diseases, PCD, uh, primary ciliary dyskinesia, and cystic fibrosis. So John, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be on this podcast. I would love to start maybe with Malawi. I read during some of my prep that that's where you grew up. And during this time, the seeds were planted for you to become a doctor. Actually, it'd be great to start here. What got you interested in medicine in the first place? And then how did you transition from seeing patients day to day into therapeutic development where you've spent close to 20 years now? Yeah. Well, so yeah, I was born in Africa. My father did a PhD in Africa and um, my mom was working as a nurse. So she was the inspiration really to be medically minded. But uh, on my father's side, I had a microscope and he was the one that showed me bugs and and, and small things and how, how to, uh, I, I was good at trying to observe things. I wasn't a great uh, scientist doing experiments at a, at, a, at a young age, but my uncle was a, a pathologist. And alongside my mom, I definitely had this sort of medical track pretty early. And at school, people would come to me with, you know, grazes, things in their eye. And, you know, I was I was definitely attracted to medicine and wanted to do it from an early age. And then transitioning to to science, that that came about. I kind of wanted to be an academic physician. It's kind of, you know, my father's a professor, went to med school, did a integrated BSc, sort of did everything I could to, to get the science background, thinking I'd be an academic physician. And then when I did my PhD, I had the benefit of collaborating with pharma uh, scientists. So these are physicians in a lab in the UK that were also looking at, my, my PhD was on asthma, uh, and I had peripheral blood cells, and we were doing experiments to look at drug effects in the test tube. And what I found was that they just had this incredible scale and rigor that as a lab scientist, I couldn't do. You know, if you're doing triplicates on a 96 well plate, I would always be wondering, you know, which which well did I miss or, you know, and so on. And I looked at my error bars and my data compared to what came back with effectively the same sample of blood, but was testing up to 12 drugs in triplicate with beautiful tight error bars. And that really inspired me to like say, wow, this industry is is where I want to want to be at. But out of full disclosure, the other thing was I was just pretty exhausted at the end of doing three or four years of 120 hours a week. The end of my general training was before the time the time directive came in from Europe and protection of junior doctors hours. And I realized I operate a lot better when I've had a good night's sleep. And that was another motivation to to go to outside of acute medicine, to move away from hospitals. And just once I joined pharma, just just never looked back. Yeah, ac- acute medicine in particular is a probably a pretty intense training environment, right? And and I think you, well, I know you work pretty hard today anyways, but I suppose there's a comparison to 120-hour weeks and life-or-death situations literally some days, right, where you're in there compared to having a little bit more time to think 
carefully about what's in front of you. Completely. Yeah. It's it's around the, the acuteness of it and and you know, those individuals in front of you that you're managing versus, you know, a population which could be a trial population or entire drug development program. It's it's, you know, you know, we 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 do medical monitoring and 24-7 stuff, but generally, yeah, it's not the the, the coal face. And you've got extensive experience in lung in particular. You've done a lot of work in asthma and and rare disease, as I mentioned earlier. What is it about that area of biology that's that's interesting to you? You know, I think I think physicians tend to go towards the specialties that that, that really appeal to them for, for many different reasons. I, I suspect for me, you know, the 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 lung at the time, I was a junior doctor, probably seemed a little less complicated than, say, the heart. You know, so you know it's a little more accessible than than kidney, liver, or, or heart. So a little more accessible in terms of the lung. You know, there there are a few reasons why I I was inspired by really great physicians at, at my hospital where I was training. People like Nigel Bateman, Peter Burney, just people that were involved in asthma and and lung diseases and. I think I could get my arms around it in a way that perhaps cardiology or was a little more complicated and, and a little more inaccessible to me at, at the time. So it was kind of, you know, just just early influences and probably just personality types. Uh, I think physician sets tend, tend to uh, congregate in, in, in self, uh, self-identification uh, ways. Yeah, the, the, I'd love to talk a little bit about asthma. I'm not a expert in the area, but from my vantage point, it, it does seem like one of those diseases that maybe uh, seemed simple uh, years ago, but over time has unfolded into many different, maybe distinct biological drivers. Some forms of asthma are probably really treatable today, but others are are pretty intractable. I'd love for, if you could talk about that a little bit. What What's changed in the last decade, say, or, or take a longer or shorter time horizon, if that makes more sense what's what's been solved or what's where we made enormous progress and what's still a little bit tricky yeah i think i mean i think the enormous progress is being made because of genetics and the ability to identify subsets within within diseases at scale and so you know i i I think you know asthma early on you know the concept of inflammation and adding inhaled steroids w- was great and 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 helped vast numbers of people. And so I think I think the remaining problem for asthma is around the people that don't get benefit from from the existing treatments. And we still really don't know what's driving that. What's driving the relatively very small subset now that that we can be confident don't have classical type two steroid responsive disease. And so I, I think ultimately we, we've still got a long way to go. Uh, I think the progress has been made by uh, collecting registries, aggregating well-characterized populations where you can start to do genetics at scale. Still, still got a long way to go yet, but but I, I think that's that's where it's it's evolving. Yeah, and and then maybe we can talk about some of the rare diseases you work on. So it would be great. I gave a very brief intro to Recode, but you could talk a little bit. About what drew you to Recode? What's the company about? And then, you know, maybe familiarize people with PCD and and CF, these two diseases that you all are are very focused on right now. Yeah. So, you know, I was had my own eye on Recode. It was a company that I was aware about here in the Bay Area, and really, you know, when I was approached because there was a need for scaling up on the clinical development side, you know, approaching an IND. You, you just need more hands on deck. And so 
it, it was a good opportunity to engage with the company. 23andMe was just a, a, a fantastic, uh, nearly four years, just a month shy of four years. It was just an amazing run and very happy there and, and a, a very productive time. But I was kind of drawn because of the lung and because of the, the need for these two rare diseases to get into the clinic in a, in a relatively short short space of time. And as I'd done my general junior training in the London, I'd been exposed to primary ciliary dyskinesia at a specialist hospital in my, my junior doctor years. And even during my PhD, when I was, I had some blood samples that I wanted to look at it at a deeper level to try and see, I could see visually that there were changes with treatment and I wanted to, well, what's going on and how could I measure this? And so in that naive way, as a curious PhD student early on in my PhD, I went to the electromicroscopy lab and I met a wonderful scientist, Anne and she kindly showed me how to make resin blocks and to, to look at my cells under the electron microscope. She gave me a lot of time. But through that, I learned that the Brompton does all of this nasal biopsies. And so they have this massive database of primary ciliary dyskinesia patients. So for the, the audience, these are, we all have cilia cells. These are hair-like projections that move our mucus up uh, out of our nose and sinuses and in our lungs up and out that we swallow our mucus uh, without noticing it. And in primary dyskinesia, dis they, they have loss of function mutations and so the cilia physically don't move. And on an electron microscope, you can see in the axoneme, these are these highly conserved structures that allow the cilia to move. The, the outer dynein arm proteins, for example, are physically missing and you can see that at the resolution of a, an electron microscope. So they're the the gene loss of function leads to a, a visible structural uh, loss of presence. So it was a curiosity and, and being familiar with it and being able to, to have in my mind what a drug development path looks like. You know, for four years at 23andMe, it was looking at all of these genetic insights. And the question is, well, then what's a useful medicine going to be out of this? You know, we're all familiar with the big stories, the sclerostin or PCSK9. You know, the, the observations of loss of function out there in the clinic that lead to these genetic insights that then you can get a therapeutic for, you know, the, the, the core stories that drive us to use genetics to, 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 to develop relevant therapeutics. Yeah. And, and interestingly, I think a lot of the common disease stories are about using loss of function as a way to get at inhibition as a therapeutic, right? PCSK9, the, the, the very short story is loss of function is protective. And so then therefore a small molecule or a ASO or something else or, not, or that can inhibit the gene in people who don't have the natural knockout then may get benefit where you all are approaching it almost from the opposite and more classical rare disease perspective, right? In PCD, you've got loss of function in dozens of genes. You can you can talk a little bit about how many genes can break cilia function, but maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about cystic fibrosis as well, because people who are familiar with it will know that there is a treatment for a subset of patients that carry a certain subset of mutations, but not for the loss of function, right? So what you all are looking at are there's there's myriad ways to break the function of of cilia that result in CF or PCD and and in that case you need to go in and restore gene function rather than correct it with a small molecule or or something else is that right yeah so so in primary ciliary dyskinesia there are about fifty genes that are importantly able to to break that ciliary function and the the top five most common loss of function account for about half of primary ciliary dyskinesia so. There is an ability to go in and, and provide a effectively a replacement therapy using mRNA 
transduced in the in the lung airway cells to to replace that missing protein with the mRNA instruction, and that we can show ex vivo in in, in a test tube because you can take air liquid interface experiments. You can see cilia moving under the microscope and see in in either primary human tissue or knockout models the restoration of function with with the mRNA coming in delivered with the with with the LMP and the cystic fibrosis. Yes, the ten percent of CF have this complete, generally nonsense mutations where they're not producing CFTR, the, the, the chloride channel that, that's important in CF, where we could, with a mRNA replacement, help that subset that are not going to be able to benefit from the modulators that have been transformative in, in CF. Uh, and so it's this remaining subset of the rare disease that are, are really lacking in, in any, any potential treatments unless we can come in and, and restore that function. Yeah, and what one thing that always caught my eye about Recode was the delivery platform, actually, because I've, I think, as I mentioned to you, John, I've interviewed a lot of people on this podcast about gene therapies. And one of the common challenges is actually delivery to the right tissue or, or organ system. And you all have a platform that we probably won't have time to go into excruciating detail today, but maybe we'll have a, a follow-up where we go into the science and we'll link some of the papers in the show notes. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the tissue-specific delivery platform that you have and, and how it works. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's the the great excitement I had about Recode is coming and learning that, you know, that the, the company formed by bringing the discovery, Dan Sequert, great scientist who was able to work out how to apply these lipid nanoparticles to be able to have tissue specificity to be able to go beyond the liver. So typically when when sort of a classical lipid nanoparticle go, goes into the body, in the bloodstream, it's a bit like the endogenous transport of lipids that happens in, in the body. So a VLDL particle through APOE binding will end up in the liver. And so that's what happens with the vast majority of, of lipids. What Dan Siegwart discovered was if you can add a sort lipid into the into the, the particle structure, you can get tissue specificity. So uh, in the case of lung to get beyond liver and, and to be predominantly coming into the lung and, and, and not going into the liver first of all. So it, it's not a, a mechanism by which it's sort of liver and then a bit more goes elsewhere, but it's pr- primarily going, going, going into the lung, is to the publications and what he was able to show was that the protein corona that is part of, of the, the, the way the LMP works once it gets into the body, into the bloodstream, you get a desorption of, of things like pegylated lipids, and that allows different proteins to then bind. We call that bind, and then we call that the protein corona. And so in the case of the, the lung mechanism, he's identified that a protein called vitronectin is the more enriched protein that's binding to these particles with that arrangement of specific lipids. And that allows binding to alpha V beta 3 and, and, and lung cells express that. And, and, and so the, there's a, a specific binding that happens. And so he's demonstrated proteins for the spleen. And I think this work is ongoing. But the excitement is that, that, that we can now deliver lipid nanoparticles. For our two lead programs, it's nebulized. So we're actually going nebulized route. And that allows to, to go directly in, into the airway cells. Uh, and their progenitor cells. And, and that's a very rational way of delivering directly to the lung. But we're also working on ways to, to achieve that through a giving an intravenous route of administration. 
Yeah, and I, I guess other organ systems you can think about changing the changing the sort sort code or the <laughs> if we want to use a banking analogy to to figure out how to get it to. Yeah, I think you can do the spleen. You're looking at some other tissues as well. Maybe yeah, you can talk we're a little look, bit about uh, that. Looking, you know, heart, brain. We're we're looking across at, at ways to 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 deliver and. You know, some of Dan's uh, recent papers at the end of last year uh, in terms of the lung is being able to transpire basal cells, so progenitor cells in the lung, to really get get uh, long-lasting transduction. So that the next wave is, is going to be, I think, genetic editing, where you can get, get corrections that allow potentially many more diseases to be applied, and particularly in the case of CF, to, to then start to go towards more curative approaches. Yeah, amazing. You you mentioned 50 genes, five or so of which contribute to the bulk of PCD diagnoses. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the genetics of this disease and and what we know about what percentage of patients are diagnosed, undiagnosed, what that journey looks like. For for those who are really interested in this, we've been working together, Sano and Recode, on a program called Think PCD, which is a free genetic testing program for patients uh, who are either diagnosed or suspected. Uh, so you can visit thinkpcd.com if you want to learn more about that. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit just about the what we know today about the genetics and also what's some of these are still open questions, I think, actually, of, of how many patients are undiagnosed and may have something else like bronchiectasis or some other kind of disease. But it'd be great to talk a little bit about that diagnosis challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, it, in primary cellular dyskinesia, about half the subjects by chance will have organs uh, situated the wrong side of the body, the, the situs invertus. And that fundamental problem is just because in the in the embryo the sinus node if it's not functioning in a specific direction there's a random chance that the organs will end up on one side or, or the other but cartaginous syndrome classical heart on, on the right side of the body there's a clue there as to why somebody might be having a wet productive cough and and so it was recognized early and so there, there's there's a clue and so about half of of PCD patients will have this, this, this clue that allows the genetics to be tracked down, down early. But there's a group that will have heart normally situated on the left, and they end up in adult bronchiectasis clinics where, because we, we haven't got, I think, consistent genetic testing across the board for, for adult bronchiectasis, we're just not picking up people that have pathogenic mutations that would, that would diagnose the underlying reason why they've ended up with, with, with bronchiectasis. These, dilated airways that that are uh, as a result of the the, the colonization and the, the chronic infection in lungs where the cilia are not moving. I'd love actually maybe to go back to the situs inversus because this was something that was new new to me when I started to learn about this condition. And it, it's it's frankly amazing biologically. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. And it, it sounds like it maybe gives a good handle on prevalence of the disease if it if it truly is is it 50 50 like it's a stochastic process where they yeah. may go one way or another yeah so, so maybe you can go back and do a little more detail on that from why is it that it's 50 50 and then that i guess tells you what the prevalence is which solves a, a problem in a nice way yeah i you know i my my understanding is some somewhat superficial that that as in the embryo if your organs organogenesis is being sort of almost managed by the fact that our cilia are, are fundamental, they're very, the axoneme, the, the, the structure is highly conserved. And so it, it's a very powerful mechanism by which fluids are, are, are moved around. So I suspect if it's not there, then by random chance, 
things are going to end up in the body around where just where, where they locate. So I suspect there's a dividing line that happens in early embryology that I'd, I'd love somebody in your audience to tell me more about yeah. um, that, that, that I think is fascinating. But I think ultimately in terms of the genetics, though, you know, it, it, it is a rare disease. But it's it's not it's not ultra ultra rare, and so if you take PCD as a whole, you know if you're starting to account for thirty percent of adult bronchiectasis, you're getting up to to pretty large numbers of of people that are that are impacted. Yeah, and what, what do we know about penetrance in terms of the of the percentage of people who are recess? It's a recessive disease or a compound heterozygote, so you need need two hits does everyone go yeah, on so, so so for the actual loss of function to be to be clinically I mean, you need biallelic the mutations and and so you need the loss of more than 50 percent there are some excellent cases it's generally autosomal recessive pattern and i think that that's because of the needing to be biallelic to to cause expression of, of the condition so yeah biallelic mutations either x-linked or but predominantly autosomal recessive. You are you joined Recode as you mentioned because of this push into the clinic, and and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience with rare disease drug development versus common disease. What's easier? What's harder? One of the things that that brought me into this field. I come from a genetics background, obviously, but I've been shifting more and more towards the clinical trials and clinical development side of things because for two reasons. One, the impact on patients is is obviously pretty clear. From the work that you do, but also um, maybe a little bit to the story you told earlier, the the level of rigor of the science that happens in randomized control trials and the kind of work that you do when you're bringing a drug, you know, really into the hands of patients is is pretty amazing. I always explain to people how incredible these experiments are. From you know, we were talking before this about thousand, multi thousand page documents and data that you're pouring over. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you found to be easier in the rare disease world and what's what's harder and vice versa for common diseases. It's, I think what what's easier is is that you know rare diseases have these incredible communities that pull together because they have to come come together and work together in order to you know get get the traction get the effort to solve their problem and whether it's an N of 1 or a you know a, any rare disease I think that aspect of community building patient advocacy is in, so incredibly strong in the rare disease area that that makes it easier because when when you're doing a clinical trial and you're looking at at patient engagement you know I can look at a a registry of you know a collection of of 120 patients with a rare disease and I'm pretty confident that we're going to have very high numbers coming into clinical trials but if you look at common diseases a fact that I think always shocks me is that even in the setting of an oncology trials, we only have about three to five percent of people engaged and participating in clinical trials. And so the question is why is why is that happening? And I, I, I think it's in rare disease, there's a there's a need to do rigorous clinical trials, there's a need for therapies. And so if you've got that community engagement, you can get the, get them done in, in a reasonable time frame. Whereas in, in more common diseases, somewhat cynically, people are replaceable. <laughs> if somebody X is not coming in, then then you know you've got Ys around the corner. You can you right. can find uh, people uh, and, and it's just at scale. You can move at, at, at the numbers which we like to have in, in drug development. You know, we like to have 
uh, at least 100 people treated for one year and a safety database of, of you know, 1,500 people, 3,000 people. You know, we like, we, 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 by the end of phase three, we want to have large numbers to be able to be confident about small signals. But in rare disease, we have to get more comfortable that, you know, with smaller numbers, we, we, can, we can bring the rigor that this is a clinically meaningful drug, but it may take us longer to gain that safety experience. And, and so it's, it's, it's a question of balance. Yeah, that makes sense. Some of our listeners are going to be really familiar with designing and even running major clinical trial programs, but, but many will not be. I wonder if you could talk about in a, you know, in a typical common disease clinical development program, something like asthma, maybe what are the major steps look like? And then, and, and then in contrast, a rare disease program, what's different. I'm where my mind going is going is things like natural history studies. For example, you may not need to think about for common diseases. Also, you know, you can, you can skip some steps in rare diseases if you've got breakthrough designation or other negotiations with the FDA. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what those look like. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, at a high level, once you have a, a clinical candidate, the the first in human is is the starting point, and you need relatively, you know, less than a hundred subjects are going to come in and and be the the, the people that ex- expose the 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 lowest dose, a reasonable dose to start to get your safety experience, build up uh, single and multiple ascending doses, and then in phase two, moving towards proof of activity, the ability to show that you've got a clinically meaningful drug and still relatively small numbers, but in phase two, we're, we're getting up to, to perhaps the, the 100 to, to, to 400 mark. And then in phase three, which is your confirmatory stage, you need to be able to be able to show with the, the rigor of replication, so two independent trials and the, the, the required safety experience that I mentioned earlier to, to then to be able to go and say that this is a drug that should be approved and, and out there. I think in rare disease, that there isn't very much different and that there's nothing different in the principles. And really, it's a question of doing that phase one, getting the safety experience, moving as quickly into patients as possible, addressing the question, is it, is it a clinically meaningful and and then moving to a confirmatory stage that that's reasonable and appropriately balanced for the the the, the patient population. So if, if in a rare disease there's just very few people that that you can draw on, uh, I think as a community we have to accept that we'll we can do what's reasonable, but they're not match for match in terms of scale. Yeah, makes sense. But things like breakthrough designation and and you know applying all of the the ways to to try and speed things. Up when we've got some incredibly, you know, I think that that applies both to rare and, and common diseases. And I, I think it's a question of finding, you know, the path that you know shows everybody that that you've got a drug that's really actually making making an impact. And the risk benefit that ratio of benefit to to risk and safety issues has been addressed. Yeah, one of the areas that I'm following and interested to see how it evolves is how more rare disease companies are using natural history data to. In some cases, even eliminate placebo arms in their trials. We had uh, Warren Huff, who is the CEO of Riata Pharmaceuticals, episode. I think it was 105, and they they weren't able to completely eliminate their placebo arm, but they had really good natural history data. They'd worked with the ad- patient advocacy group for a number of years and were able to basically show very convincingly what 
a patient's journey would look like in the absence of a treatment and then essentially make the argument to the FDA that they could reduce the size of placebo arm because they had really good data to back up you know what essentially would happen in the absence of treatment and i i think it's one of the i guess themes in rare diseases that i'm interested in following because the patient numbers are so hard like you said people are motivated but not motivated to be on a placebo often if there's an option not to so i'm interested to see how this evolves just from a policy standpoint of what you can do yeah i, I it's a critical area where where clearly we we can bring the rigor of the the natural history study to be able to describe what happens in a disease if left untreated it does provide that extra information that can supplement i think clearly a a, a well controlled trial where there is a placebo group. You know, as, as we know, when, when you have imbalanced randomization, you, you lose power. And so you have to supplement it in some way. And I, th- I think clearly the natural history study is a way to do that. And I, I think that's going to be a, a key advance that's going to help us complete well-controlled studies, but designed appropriately for the available patient population where you bring in that understanding. And, you know, it's surprising that we've probably not done this more earlier, if I look at diseases like interstitial pulmonary fibrosis, where large phase three trials were done in order to show that the lung function decline was less on treatment. And, and you know, the, the FDA required very large randomized controlled trials to, to demonstrate that. I do wonder if, if perhaps more effort had been made to, to, to create natural history of IPF, that the, the data to show what happens might have been able to save, you know, and have more innovative clinical trials that, that could have could have got the answers sooner. Yeah, this but is... I will say in common diseases, we also need to be doing natural history studies. So take the world of severe asthma. You know, I I, I think that the the more we understand the people who are not responding to existing treatments, they also become a rare disease. You know, severe asthma is is this. You know, whether it's two or five percent of people that really don't respond to existing treatments. That becomes a rare disease within a complex disease, and there they have a challenge because then, then you know, how can they get the that all that community engagement that happens in a rare disease to get behind their problem statement? And and you know whether it's even say Nash, you know that the the Nash community I think have been struggling to get their drug that's really going to help them, and they they have an amazing patient advocacy group and have been really pushing for natural history studies of, of you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver to be able to get what are the biomarkers that show progression? How can we enrich for the people that are, are going to end up in a, in a really clinically difficult spot that, that they, they have the unmet need and they need treatment? Yeah, I think that's a great point. There's an interesting movement in that field, I think, led by the Liver Forum that I, I would love to see across more diseases to pool placebo data across the major trials as well because this to me seems like you know this seems like a no-brainer from you know, these very large studies being run and people just aren't I, I understand why some companies might not want to share data on their active investigative drugs but I think there's a movement to pool placebo data which will be really interesting because you effectively get very large high quality natural history data at a, at a huge scale that could help solve this kind of problem yeah I, th- I think we have to find ways to allow the registries to foster and be owned by by basically the patients themselves and then companies come in and uh, get access to that data to 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 sub- supplement their, their programs and i think that that's you know that's an area that i i think is building 
I think there's been some very innovative work in the UK using effectively it's it's like having patient passports because within a large healthcare system like the National Health Service in the UK, you know, that system owns an entire individual's life of of data. And so there are completely ethical and, and rigorously scientific ways of getting access to that data. And there have been some preliminary work done in, in the asthma world to look at, you know, literally a randomized phase three clinical trial done out of pharmacies in the community and randomizing people within the community with, with an inhaled drug and a, and a placebo. I think it, that could be another incredible That's podcast cool. to invite the people behind that innovation and, and how, they, how they got to do that trial. Yeah. Do you know the name of the program by any chance? It's around the Northwest Health Authority. It's a group in Manchester. And I apologize, I am doing name recall block. I'm, I'm <laughs> Googling in the background. Well. But, but our conversation has kind of reminded me of, of, of that work. And I, I can find a paper we can post to attach to the podcast because I know it's infuriating when somebody's giving you a lead, but you don't know where to go. No, no, we will find it. Yeah, I'm, I'm continually impressed by all the innovation happening in the UK. I, you've spent a lot of time here. You're, well, I guess you're from Malawi originally, but you're, you grew up here, right? Where did you grow up in, in England? I, my, I, I, was, I was five when I came back, you know, and so, yeah, I pretty much... Born and raised, born in Africa, but raised in the UK. Went to school, medical school in in London, St. Guys and St. Thomas's Hospital. Yeah, I've obviously I've lived here for ten years, but there's the the UK. Besides the flagship things like Genomics England and the Genomic Medicine Service, there there are lots more innovative things happening. There's a last late last year they announced a, a very cool rare disease focused ASO program where patients could get access to and basically N of one kind of um, antisense oligonucleotide therapies. So I just think the UK is really is is just doing so much like on a big scale, but also this is a, a good example of using the NHS as a platform to actually do really interesting science and not just deliver medicine. So I think the future is bright over here. Completely. And I think for PCD, I was so excited when they included PCD in the, in the birth genetic uh, panel, such that, you know, at birth, people are going to be able to find out very important genetic information that because for PCD, really, the, the loss of function happens. I mean, uh, incredible descriptions of at the age of nine, having a, a lung lobectomy uh, because of Cilia wow. not moving and, and impacting at, a, at an early age. And so I think there's a disconnect with our understanding of actually how severe and important primary ciliary dyskinesia is on those individuals, which ostensibly in, the, in, in most of the literature quotes that they have a normal lifespan. Actually, it's not true. On average, there's at least a seven-year reduction from the actuarial numbers around survival. And so, yes, the 10% of, of CF patients that have nonsense mutations and, and don't have the ability to produce protein at all, they have, have a, you know, a terrible shortening of lifetime still you know, in, 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 in the 30s and 40s. I think the median is 34. So you know, PCD, I think, has got a long way to go to, to really show that, that we need to start treating early. You know, Potentially from the age of one or two, you could give a, a nebulized treatment that, that can yep. restore ciliary function and prevent somebody from needing to have, you know, a, a lobectomy in childhood. So I, I, think, I think we've got a long way to go. But yes, the innovation, I think, is coming in England. I think they have the ability to recognize that genetics is going to be 
you know, a, a guiding principle, uh, but also sharing data, that, that whole uh, ability to, to use the deep patient database that's owned by the patient, directed by the patient, but used for the benefit of, you know, if it's an N of one, great, but, you know, if, it, if it's for more, then, then all the better. Yeah. And, and just for the benefit of listeners, we're doing a little bit of a deep dive into some of these newborn screening programs. So we've spoken to Wendy Chung, who leads a program called Guardian out of Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital. They've sequenced around 8,000 newborns with whole genome sequencing. Also, Holly PA, who leads a program out of North Carolina that's, I think, sequenced 1,000 newborns in their first month. They're across the whole state. And, and they've both got really interesting triage methods where first they sequence genes that have or they 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 focus on return of results around genes that can have an impact within the first two years of life and are very actionable but north carolina group has a also a couple other tiers where they're potentially actionable where something like pcd may fit into that group and they also have a trials pathway so if there's a a big enough group of trials, then they'll uh, work closely with north carolina sites i just think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening here and in 10 years from now, I think we're going to see newborn whole genome sequencing is is just part of the deal. And I think patients and families are going to be way better off for it. And it should make programs like yours even easier to, to scale and, and run because people are going to be spotted potentially a few years before they become symptomatic. And that may be the that ought to be the very best time to treat in the vast majority of cases. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the more we can move towards uh, preventative medicine and you know before before pathology sets in clearly that's you know so much more impactful and 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 the way the way we should move yeah absolutely i'd I'd love to maybe close out here with a question that i really like to ask a lot of our guests it's one of my favorites because it just helps me to expand my horizons a little bit but i'm curious about a technology or or an approach a theory it could be a person anything really that you're excited about that you think is somewhat underappreciated today this is deliberately wide so it could be a technology concept so whatever you have in mind well i mean i was i didn't want to say the the, the sort platform because that would be way too self-serving so i'm going to exclude that from my answer you know i i think registries are underappreciated you know, I was I was involved in the the formation of a, a severe asthma registry twenty years ago. That that you know the asthma community came together, industry put in some seed money, the database was formed, and now it's grown to eight thousand severe asthmatics in the UK. And I think it's just a little bit underappreciated because I think you know as you know all the geneticists and. and um, in the audience will know that that you really need that scale to start to get genetic information. So even 8,000 is too small. And so I think we need to find a way to develop registries which are going to give that deep phenotypic information at scale that's going to really start to, to be transformative. And, you know, that's clearly happening, whether you start with, you know, the, the decode and Iceland and Estonia you know, FinGen, 23 UK Biobank. I mean, I mean they, these things are happening, but my suspicion is that the registry part of it, the patient ownership part of it is less than it should be, that could be transformative to really bring the patients to the fore and then have the unmet needs driving the deep data discovery that you need in order to drive therapeutics. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I'm I'm doing multiple episode plugs on this episode, but for me, the king of registries, I don't even know if they've called themselves a registry, but the UK Biobank has just been so 
transformative. We had Professor Sorori Collins on episode 40. It's actually, we replayed it for episode 109 because it's so good and um, and just evergreen. But what struck me about that is how many years they basically just built the resource. They had no, they had a lot of people wondering when would, when would this come to fruition? When will it return value? And they started in the, I think in the early 2000s. And we can just see what an enormous impact it's had now. So registries often fly, to your point, under the radar for many years while they get to critical mass and they do require some visionary leadership to say what's what could this look like if we really plug away at it for a decade and and think ahead so i couldn't agree with you with you more on that right yeah no i, I think we could bring bring some more registry people along and, and talk about those challenges of being visionary but but then having to really be tenacious and, and persistent to grow it and the CF CF community, I think, is a, is a huge yes. example of a great success where, you know, we we are going to be able to draw on, you know, Recode's program. You know, we can go to centers that that have registries of 250, 500 people. You know, there, there, there are many more than that, but I'm, I'm talking about an individual center yes. where they're known of these class one mutations, 10% nonsense mutations that are, are not producing protein. So the CF field, I think, really led that that effort in terms of having the ownership by the patient group, the, the accessibility so that, that the patients know where where their genetics are and, and then drive the need to to solve for for what their their issue is. Yeah, absolutely. Well well John, I'd just like to say thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. I we've obviously known each other for a more than a year now, but uh, it's always nice to have this time to just talk about your career, some of the work you're doing and and share it with a wider group of people. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's been uh, great to connect and um, yeah, look, look forward to the follow-ups. Great. And thanks everybody. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you liked the episode, the best thing you can do is just share it with a friend or colleague that you think would like it. And of course, you can leave us a review if you like, but sharing with a friend is more important to me. And uh, of course, feedback if you liked or disliked the episode. I'm sure none of you disliked it, but if you uh, if you did, then don't be afraid to let me know. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. 